0: We're continuing in Isaiah this morning, and we're going to look at chapters 3 and 4, as I said earlier. this series, we're asking the question, who do you trust? Who do you trust? The prophet says, the light of God is shining. Look no further. Look by his light. See by his light. You will see that he is (coughs) wholly trustworthy. As we look at these next two chapters in Isaiah, we'll see that God is the one who can wash away our filth, and so therefore he is trustworthy. Trust the one who can wash away your filth. Last week we looked at chapter 2, and we saw how the foolishness of humankind in every generation leads to their fall. By trusting in ourselves and our wisdom, by following the fundamentally bad advice of following your heart, as our culture, perhaps even our friends may have said to you, by doing that we (coughs) fall and we prove ourselves to be lacking. The gradual movement of humankind is not an irresistible march forwards, progressing as our species evolves, as we throw off the supposed shackles of tradition and become enlightened. The evidence from Isaiah 2, and if we're honest, the evidence all around us today is of fallenness and failure. Failure. When we trust anyone or anything but God, calamity falls hot behind. And when I say God, I of course mean the covenant God of Israel as revealed in the Holy Scriptures. There is only one true God. Our atheist friends and opponents will say, well, which God are you talking about? Which one of the thousands of gods am I supposed to believe in? There's only one true God who has proven himself trustworthy and reliable from generation to generation, from millennia to millennia, to peoples across this world. His name is Yahweh. His name is Jesus. And he has acted on our behalf. The story, the human story, has been the same from one generation to the next. The Lord our God has been merciful in sending his spokespeople, his prophets through the ages. People like our brother Isaiah, who spoke and labored 2,700 years ago through the reigns of real kings. Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah. These are men who sat on the throne of Judah. We have historical evidence to prove exactly when, exactly where. Isaiah was related to the kings of Judah. He was a prophet. What do we mean by that? What is prophecy? Well, friends, true biblical prophecy is faithfully forth that means speaking the true wisdom of God in a particular context. It means offering God's perspective on the status quo, or on the accepted norms of the day. God speaks into those situations. God wants his people to know the difference between human tradition and God's truth. Any foretelling. So, so a prophet's main job is to foretell, to speak into a context. But we often think, don't we, that, that prophecy is some kind of mystical foretelling of the future that no one could possibly have an und- idea of what's going to happen. That's the common idea of what prophecy is. Well, prophecy does contain that, but that isn't the essence of prophecy. The essence of prophecy is speaking God's truth to a context. Telling the truth. Confronting lies. Correcting mistakes. And pointing to the one who can heal us from our mistakes. Foretelling is only obvious later on. When those spiritually revealed events take place. A foretelling does happen. Isaiah, in in Isaiah 52 and 53, writes of a coming suffering servant. Right? Who, how, and why that would take place? Who was to know 700 years before Jesus arrived? Surely such a despised and pitiful man couldn't possibly be the Messiah of God. So who is this suffering servant, Isaiah? Isaiah? Actually, in the fullness of time, we come to know that the king of all must become the suffering servant. Otherwise, the the filth of hopeless sinners, those who would reject the word of God and kill his messengers, the prophets, Isaiah included. That, That could never be washed away, as is gloriously promised and foretold in the text that we'll read today. Yes, it can be washed away. God himself can deal with it. He can enter human history. He can live a perfect, spotless, righteous life, become our substitute and deal with all our problems and point us to God unmistakably. Yes, God can deal with it. The Lord God will judge the sins, the iniquity of humanity. He will discipline those he loves. And he will provide a means for them to be washed clean from their wrongdoing. Whatever it is they may have done, they will turn to him in repentance. We're going to discover all of this in Isaiah 3 and 4. Let's read now. If you've got a church Bible, it's page 687. Otherwise it will be on the screen. See now the Lord, the Lord Almighty is about to take from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support, all supplies of food and all supplies of water, the hero and warrior, the judge and prophet, the soothsayer and elder, the captain of 50 and man of rank, the counsellor, skilled craftsman and clever enchanter. What's going to happen? God is going to remove them. I will make boys their officials. Mere children will govern them. People will oppress each other, man against man, neighbor against neighbor. The young will rise up against the old, the base against the honorable. Just reflect for a second or two on our society. A man will seize one of his brothers at his father's home and say, you have a cloak, you be our leader. Take charge of this heap of ruins. But in that day he will cry out, I have no remedy. I have no food or clothing in my house. Do not make me the leader of people. Jerusalem staggers. Judah is falling. Their words and deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. The look on their faces testifies against them. They parade their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them. They have brought disaster upon themselves. Tell the righteous it will be well with them, for they will enjoy the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked. Disaster is upon them. They will be paid back for what their hands have done. Youths oppress my people. Women rule over them. O my people, your guides lead you astray. They turn you from the path. The Lord takes his place in court. He rises to judge the people. The Lord enters into judgment against the elders and leaders of his people. It is you who have ruined my vineyard. The plunder from the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. The Lord says, the women of Zion are haughty walking along with outstretched necks, flirting with their eyes, tripping along with mincing steps, with ornaments jingling on their ankles. Therefore the Lord will bring sores on the heads of the women of Zion. The Lord will make their scalps bald. In that day the Lord will snatch away their finery, the bangles and headbands and crescent necklaces, the earrings and bracelets and veils the headdresses and ankle chains and sashes, the perfume bottles and charms, the signet rings and nose rings, the fine robes and the capes and the cloaks, the purses and mirrors, the linen garments and tiaras and shawls. Instead of fragrance, there will be a stench. Instead of a sash, a rope. Instead of well-dressed hair, baldness. Instead of fine clothing, sackcloth. Instead of beauty, branding. Your men will fall by the sword, your warriors in battle. The gates of Zion will lament and mourn. Destitute, she will sit on the ground. In that day, seven women will take hold of one man and, and say, We will eat our own food and provide our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our disgrace. In that day the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and the glory of the survivors in Israel. Those who are left in Zion, who remain in Jerusalem, will be called holy. All who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem. The Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. Then the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by by night. Over all the glory will be a canopy. It will be a shelter and a shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and hiding place from the storm and rain. Amen. May God bless us with understanding. May he help us to receive the challenge this morning in the way uh, it is intended. If you're taking notes, I've got three points, three sections to my talk this morning. First of all, hopes misplaced. Hopes misplaced. Secondly, hedonism. Hedonism. If you're not familiar with what hedonism is, just uh, go over to uh, the Jolly Friar on a Friday or Saturday evening, uh, or go to Colors nightclub, and you'll you understand what hedonism <coughs> is all about. Wild partying. You don't even need to go to those places. Many of the houses up and down our streets, uh, and elsewhere, hedonism is is indulgence. It's Reckless partying. Uh, First of all, hopes misplaced. Secondly, hedonism. And thirdly, true hope from heaven. Okay? True hope from heaven. Firstly, hopes misplaced. This planet on which we live, friends, is teeming with life, isn't it? You don't have to channel hop on your TV for long before you will encounter a wildlife or a nature program putting on display for us the wonders of God's amazing creative skill. Don't believe for a moment that any of this is a random accident or merely the product of millions of years of purely natural trial and error. That would be foolish. But not only wildlife teams, human life also flourishes. Nations and peoples grow and expand, fulfilling God's command to go forth and multiply. This is what leads to the rise and fall of nations, cultures and empires, sometimes quickly, sometimes gradually. Who's behind all these developments is it all just random? Maybe, if you're not someone of faith, someone who has grasped, by the grace of God, the big picture. Friends, the Bible paints the big picture. The prophet Isaiah helps us to see the big picture. It shows us the root cause of everything that occurs in history. It shows us who made it all, who he God is and who we are and why we are here. It also shows us the tragic results when we fail to live according to God's design and purpose. Judah and Israel, the two kingdoms of God's people, demonstrate through their history as a microcosm of the world at large how God is at work in his world and how we as human beings do so much to bring ruin to ourselves. The simple fact is that as creatures made in the image of God with a great many higher attributes and with intelligence unparalleled in creation, the potential is for immense good and unbelievable evil. When we fell, by failing to trust God at his word, The sense of despair and and horror was incredible. And we have been reaping the fruit of that decision ever since. But we cannot blame Adam and Eve. Because in every generation, in our generation, at the time of the prophet Isaiah, we as human beings have done the very same thing. We have failed to trust God. Instead, we, just like the people of Israel and Judah, have put our hopes elsewhere. As nations arose around them, some great peoples with rich cultures, music, dancing, wonderful foods, aromas and spices, artwork and fashion, mystical religions, things to tantalise and amaze, innovations and wonders never seen before. This is the world in which we live. Never mind the world of Isaiah with these great empires and cultures. Friend, there is nothing new under the sun. And rebellion against God is the least novel thing that there is. Remember that when someone says to you that being a rebel is throwing off tradition, getting rid of God, that's being rebellious. No. Sorry, that's being novel. No, it's not. Rebellion is not novel. We've been doing it since shortly after our arrival as a species. The allure, the pull of wonderful, needful things of our own creation and imagination always risks pulling us away from God. And the nations around Israel, with their soft power and setting. Proved too much for the people of God. So, speaking prophetically in our day, what shall we say to challenge the status quo? What shall each one of us say to challenge the status quo? We're we're told, aren't we? We're being reinforced all the time of what's the status quo, what's the way to think and act. Does us well to scrutinise. What we see going on all around us, in many places, is hedonism. This uh, "let's live for today" phenomenon. Let, let's escape from the misery of reality. We keep hearing of wars and rumors of wars. You know, we're being told this last week. You know, they're going to conscript us into the army. Even men up to the age of 60 are going to be forced to fight. I think the media are gradually losing touch with reality, aren't they? Maybe they lost it years ago. But people are sensitive to these things. People are shocked by these things. People are fearful of these things. Maybe some of you, maybe some of your family members wondering about the future of your children. That's not an entirely crazy thing be concerned about but how are we going to deal with it how are we going to resolve it how are we going to work through it well friends we come to truth we come to the lord he is our anchor he is the rock on which we stand he is our salvation there's no salvation in bombs bullets and nuclear missiles get real But the people of the world seek to flee in escapism. When we read of what followed, once the people chose to put their trust and their hopes in, the trends and the patterns, the religions and the behaviours of the people all around them, we see what followed was a steady descent into hedonism. Sodom is referred to, that great city of sexual immorality. Is referred to in verse 9 of chapter 3. It was a place of unrestrained partying and sexual indulgence. They had no shame in the city of Sodom. And I would argue that we have increasingly less and less shame as a culture in the 21st century. The people brazenly, brazenly flaunting their errant behaviour, their excess and revelling in sensuality. We also see described there the rebelliousness, not only against God, first and foremost, but then also against human authority. Look at verse 5. The people will oppress one another, every one of his fellow and every one against his neighbour. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honourable. I don't know about you, but the constant disarray on our streets is greatly saddening. Yet most people seem to simply shrug and get on with it, if it doesn't affect them. But how much longer can the crime and injustice situation be ignored? Yeah, I said crime and injustice. Because what we see today is not justice. Did you hear about the thug who mindlessly killed 62-year-old father of two, Gerald Neto, in West London last year? Mocked, assaulted, pushed to the ground where he hit his head, resulting in a fatal heart attack. And the thug responsible, caught on CCTV with all the evidence that the prosecutors could possibly need, got a 12-month sentence. Surely justice has abandoned us here in Britain. The New Testament also tells us a rise in such behaviour will characterise the last days. I'm going to read from 2 Timothy in the New Testament. Come with me if you will. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 to 7. But mark this. People think that prophecy died out with the Old Testament. Think again. lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, having nothing to do do with it, Paul says. They are the kind who worm their way into homes, gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. Always learning, but never able to acknowledge the truth. If that's not a description of our schools, colleges, and universities today, I don't know what is. Hedonism everywhere. And like all sinful abandonment of God and his ways as shown to us in Scripture, rather than beautifying ourselves, as it describes in uh, Isaiah 3, 18-24, We will find that if we put our hopes and trusts in those things, they will fail us. Our fine scents will rot. Our braided hair will fall out. Our rich clothing will be taken away. In fact, everything, mighty armies, institutions of justice, will all crumble and fall if we do not put God first. Because he is the God of all truth. He is the God of all justice. And he is watching this world. He is not happy to see what's going on, all the compromise, all the rewriting of laws in the name of love and tolerance. Why is everything falling apart? It's not a mystery, friends. Because God is first, whether we like it or not. And he does not share the glory that belongs to him with anyone else. He especially will not allow his precious covenant people to delude themselves for long. I'll say that again. He especially will not allow his covenant people, his precious covenant people, to delude themselves for long. If you're ever puzzling why life has gotten hard, why discipline has come upon you, maybe you've been flirting with the world. Maybe you've been entertaining ideas that don't please God. Perhaps that's what's been frustrating you or causing you to miss out on God's best, his most abundant blessings, distractions in the world, the pursuit of material things. Friends, as God strips these things away, let us return to him and place our whole trust in him. And we will find that our hopes are renewed and restored like we have never known. Because there is true hope from heaven. There is joy unparalleled in God and in Christ, his Son, our Saviour. My final point. Friends, the New Testament writers uh, also recognize, as I've demonstrated already, that God, in his great mercy, uh, would and has, in Christ, done a great work. He had kept his promises and brought new life to his people. But not all natural descendants of Abraham truly were his people. Only those who had received the righteousness of Christ by the gift of faith, they, people from among Jews and from every nation, tribe, and tongue, they would become, to the eternal praise of God's glorious grace, part of the Lord's faithful olive tree, his kingdom people. Both those who are raised up naturally and ingrafted branches. The writer to the Hebrews quotes the prophet Jeremiah. I'm going to read from Hebrews. Got your Bibles? Turn with me to Hebrews. This is why it's always a good idea to have your Bible. Hebrews chapter 8. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. I'll even dare to say Paul. Paul preached the following from Jeremiah 31. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. How is that possible? In Christ, our Saviour. And from chapter 10 of the same letter, from verse 14, because by one sacrifice, that's the sacrifice of Christ, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts. I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. Because it's been dealt with by God to his eternal glory. But you can't have one without the other. You can't have grace and forgiveness in Christ without a new mind, without a new heart that leads you in a totally different direction from the world. The two don't go together. They are incompatible to receive the forgiveness and grace of God but then just carry on in the world way. Instead, friends, we fight a battle. We take God's side. What wonders God performs when he washes away the filth of the daughters of Zion, as Isaiah tells us as he prophesies. Yet that cleansing, that washing would only come through judgment, verse 4. How then could anyone stand, you might say? Well, Christian, what have you come to know in your life? The gracious mercy of God who loves to redeem sinners from their lives of rebellion and misdirection. Doesn't he? Isn't that your experience? It's my experience. What wickedness we've been turned from. But perhaps you found that extricating yourself from the world is not as easy as it is suggested at first. Sin lurks at the door. Temptations that we heard of earlier assail you more frequently than you're comfortable with. I wonder if your weakness is all too apparent. Well, thank God that he's shown you your weakness. Thank God that you're aware of your lack so you can come to him to fill you up, so you can come to him to wash you clean entirely. Let's not forget how great a saviour Jesus is. Have we neglected to put our trust in him? Truly and repeatedly, day after day? Friends, let's start afresh today. Isaiah reminds us in this text that God is is the true defender of his people. It is he who can be relied on, not only to wash away every stain of sin, but also to be with us. Did you notice that in chapter 4? That God promises to be with us. That's how he's going to overcome our sin and wash it away. This is signified by the cloud and the pillar of smoke by day and the flaming fire by night. Remember? He is a protective canopy, a place of refuge to which each of us must daily turn. He is a shelter like no other from the storm and the rain. The power of his cross, the real purpose for his incarnation, was to go to the cross for you and I. It's a power for salvation for sinners, people like you and me. That we might be washed clean and given a new heart, life in all its fullness. We've had a lot of storms this winter, didn't we? Is this a coincidence? Climate change? Friends, the climate that's changed is the spiritual climate. The trust that we have as a culture for God, that's what's changed. We have abandoned him just like the people of Judah. And consequently, life becomes more challenging because God knows that we need him and he will irresistibly and faithfully seek out his sheep so let us return to him let us cleave to him our true and living savior the one who put on flesh who dealt who literally tented with us in order to save every one of his sheep He is the booth. Jesus is the refuge and the shelter who we need and who we must trust with all that we are. That's why the things are happening that they are. So that we would trust Him entirely. So that we would realise our 100% need of Jesus. Not our 95% need of Jesus, our 100% need of Jesus. Every day, in every place, in every house. Let's bow our heads in prayer.